Hey everybody, I have an announcement. My new book, Traumatized, is available for pre-order now. In it, I cover PTSD and complex PTSD, the symptoms we can experience when we have been traumatized, and of course, ways we can overcome these and heal. There is honestly too much helpful information in this book to list it all, but if you've ever wondered if you've been traumatized or are working to overcome past trauma, this book is for you. I cannot wait for it to be out in the world and help anyone suffering, so please pre-order yours today at katiemorton.com. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. We are back in Los Angeles. We went to Austin to look at homes and we did not find our forever home, unfortunately. However, <clears throat> we did find, you know, areas that we like, homes that could have worked, but we just kind of want to, you know, like our realtor says, it's like getting married. You want to make sure it's the right partner and the right, the right home, <laughs> you know? So um, anyway, I, okay, because something that I used to love to do when we used to travel a lot, you know, now we just don't, but when we used to, I uh, would always listen to podcasts and read books and just, I, I guess I was able to consume more media for myself versus the media I consume now is usually like research-based and ways to create content for you guys. And so anyway, on my trip, I was listening to Armchair Expert, which is a podcast that I love by Dax Shepard. And I took some notes. So I'm going to reference my phone and don't think it's, you know, me like multitasking. I'm just pulling up my notes because there was a, it was released, I believe in September, but it's called, it's Dak Shepard's Armchair Expert. And the title of the episode is called Day 7. And if I remember, I will link it below, but you can just go and find it wherever you listen to podcasts. And I wanted to talk about it a little bit because the the essence of the podcast is that if you don't know who Dax Shepard is, he's an actor and he's married to Kristen Bell and, you know, super successful Hollywood family, if you want to phrase it like that. But something that he talks about a lot in his podcast is how he has been 16 years sober and he just had his birthday. And <clears throat> unfortunately, he had a relapse and he struggled to figure out if he was going to talk about it publicly. He had a lot of ego involved, right? And then as we all know, if any of us are in recovery from something and we count days, that feeling that we're back to zero is overwhelming and it can feel, we can feel very defeated and it can, in some, in some experiences with my patients, it can cause what could have been a small slip up of a relapse into a full blown, you know, backsliding relapse, it can be tough for us to pull ourselves back out. And so anyways, I'd encourage you to listen to the episode of any of what I'm talking about you find interesting. But what was really okay, so I, I enjoyed the conversation because the great thing about Dax is that he has a lot of personal insight and uh, awareness of kind of the motives behind what he does. And he was talking about how he just needed to come clean and he needed to say it and get it out there because 
he was going to be overcome with the lies and gaslighting those that he loved. And that was essentially too high a price for him to pay for him to keep living in this relapse. And what initially drew him to like AA or NA or whatever, you know, a 12 step recovery program was uh, cocaine and alcohol. And those were his vices. However, with this relapse, it was actually in um, opioid world because he had a surgery and he had to have pain pills for a little while to get through it. And he found himself doing some mischievous and gray area things that he tried to write off as not that big of a deal and not really a relapse. And then he had to be honest with himself about the fact that it was, and now he's going through what we would call withdrawal or detoxing from being on opiates for you know, quite a few months here. And he's embarrassed with that too. And so anyway, I bring this up only because it brought up a lot of thoughts for me. Because if you don't know, if you haven't been watching me for a long time, or maybe you just never stumbled across this information, I do not uh, specialize in addiction. And it's actually something that I will almost automatically refer out only because there are wonderful clinicians who specialize in the same way that I do eating disorders and self-injury work. There are other people who are suited for addiction and I want to make sure people get proper care, right? So I often refer out and I've had a, my own internal, if I'm being honest, okay, in the it, with Dax being honest, I feel like it's important for all of us to be honest. That was really powerful and it made me tear up listening to it and even talking about it. I'm like, it's such an emotional thing. But I'll be honest that as a therapist, even though I have all this knowledge and I recognize that addiction is a mental illness, I've always struggled with it to fully understand. And I don't, that's probably my own block. And, you know, I had a, a friend of mine in college who just kind of, we lost touch. He got involved in drugs and he overdosed and died. And that was really difficult and hard to grapple with and understand. And, you know, I've had people struggle with alcohol in my life who've gone sober since. And, Anyway, it's always been very complicated in my brain, even though I'm a mental health professional, you know, and I've recognized my own judgment and stigma. And so that's part of the, another reason why I've always referred out. But Dax's podcast really just drove home the fact that addiction is a mental illness because so it, and I'm just reading my notes here because I said, if you don't know, I don't specialize in addiction, but it really showed me just how out of their control, it can be. It doesn't mean they're off the hook, but you can see it's a diseased, you know, just, uh, it's like he was talking about how he has this constant need for control and justification where he would like justify his behaviors because if he was doing this and he was taking this many pills, then he, you know, he needed to keep it just enough under so Monica, his co-host, wouldn't notice. Because I guess there were a couple times where she would say like, what's wrong with you? Something's up with you today. And he'd be like, like, no, 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 nothing's wrong. You're just being sensitive kind of thing, like gaslighting her when she knew something was up. And um, and he he was talking about how this this sense of control that the addiction gave him, which seems, it seems counterintuitive, right? Because if he thought he had control, but then it's taking over his life so much so that he is coming unraveled, it's clearly not under control. But it was just so powerful to see inside the brain of someone who's been in recovery 
uh, like essentially off and on for many, many years, right? He went a whole eight years he talks about, and then he had a, a little bit of a gray area where he um, went to, when his dad was uh, passing away, he, he took some of his dad's pain pills with his dad. And he was like, it reminded me of back when he started, which is kind of, his dad was kind of part of, I think the reason for the addiction and one of the cat, you know, catalysts of that. And so anyway, he was talking about um, how, how devastated essentially that he was having relapsed and how out of control and how quickly it kind of took over. And I, I only bring this up because I kind of, I want everybody to listen to it because I want people to be able to humanize in the way that I needed that extra push to be like, yes, I feel it. I see it. It's palpable. I recognize that addiction is a mental illness. I think it's helpful for all of us to kind of hear a story of someone who people, a lot of people put on a pedestal saying, oh, he's been 16 years sober. This is, he's so amazing. He's just like above it now. And he, he personally, you know, it was difficult to come clean about it because then you're back to zero, like I said earlier, but it was also, he was saying even it was humbling and he, he sees this kind of relapse as essentially a bigger part of his recovery and it's allowed him to have deeper connections with people. And so there's so much I could unpack here, but a couple of parts of it were in the whole, hopefully the points that I, I don't even know if I'm getting across. It's just like, I'm just kind of like free association with this, but I, I hope that it helps you understand that it is a disease because the way he describes how his brain works and how it's, it's almost like he's not even, even himself. It's like once drugs of any kind are, uh, he's exposed to them in any way, he goes into this like, how do I get that? And then justifying weird behavior and then lying and gaslighting those around him. It, it, he said it's like, it's not even a thought. There's like no way that he can be introduced to uh, some kind of mood or mind altering drug and not want to take it to the extreme. And there's no conscious choice because I think a lot of people I know in eating disorders, especially people assume it's a choice, you know, like just eat more, stop eating or whatever. Right. We, people say that shit all the time and it's really invalidating. And I understand, I understand it from an intellectual perspective, but it was just great to feel it and understand it from an emotional perspective. And so that podcast was really powerful to me. And I think, so that's kind of the first is that like, it is a disease. It is an, you know, something that it kills people for a reason. And I think a lot of times we think we'll just stop and that's just not how it works. We need real care. It's part of my, my issues with the homeless crisis in Los Angeles is they're like, well, we're just going to build more homes. And I'm like, no, these people need treatment. They're, they're mentally ill. We have a crisis, an opioid crisis and a mental health issue. We don't have enough treatment available to people who don't make thousands, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars each year. And that's not, that's not okay to me. Building homes is not going to fix that. Um, But that's a whole nother conversation for another day. But so that's part of it. And then the other part is, and something I just kind of want to hear your feedback about is that I've always hated counting days because in the podcast, like it's called day seven, because he's seven days sober and you have to start counting again. And I don't I know that for a lot of people, it helps keep them sober because he talks about how, 
you know, having the, uh, his birthdays, what, cause you have a birthday in your sobriety. So for your first year or second year, and they make a birthday cake at your AA meeting or your NA meeting. And you, you talk a little, you know, anyways, he, so now he's going back to, you know, one and now he's seven days. And I feel I've never liked it because even though I know people think it's motivating, I think it's, it's really, it makes admitting relapse and, and picking ourselves back up potentially that much more difficult. And it can feel like a failure versus what I hope people feel is that was a tough time. I'm glad I spoke up and got more help and pulled myself out of it. Let's get back on track and not this like defeat because in Dax's uh, case, it was 16 years. And, and he said, if he's being honest, he thinks it was about eight years in where he had that slip up with his dad. Um, and I, I prefer that kind of like slip up, you know, like you don't need to lose all that time because what I'm always telling you guys is like, even if we, we fuck up, we do something that's not healthy, which we're all guilty of that shouldn't put us back at square one, because what I want people to know and, and Dex does realize this, but I, for other people out there, I want you to know that all the hard work and all the things that you learned and the tools that we use to overcome stuff, right? All those tools that helped us get where we, where we're at aren't lost. And all those years of sobriety aren't lost because we slipped up and, you know, fucked up, made a mistake. Like that's just human. That's just part of life. And nothing is just, it's, it's difficult. Right. And then the pressure he, he felt like the pressure kept building and, his sponsor, after he came clean about everything to everybody, his sponsor was the one that was like, you need to say it publicly. That's your, you know, that's the way to like, the real way to to do this, to to fight back against your ego and the things that drive you to want control is you need to let go of the control. But he was asking him, like, how was that birthday, right? Because he'd already relapsed and he went into his 16 year anniversary and birthday at his meeting. And he was like, it was the longest hour of my life. And that's, that's the thing is like, I don't know, I feel like counting just isn't helpful. I don't know. But what do you think? Like, everybody's different. But I just don't like that. Like, oh, I'm back to zero. And he's like, well, if you've been sober for more than seven days, then you're better than me. And I get the importance of being honest and being vulnerable and, and letting our, you know, pushing our ego aside. But I just, I hope that people don't feel because Dax was saying that if you admit it's a relapse, then he was like, well, then I'll just go balls at the walls, like all out, get wasted and make and kill myself, maybe. And he was like, it's very dangerous. And I, that's why I don't like the like, well, fuck it, throw it away, right? It's been 16 years, and it's all over. Like, I don't like that mindset that I know that kind of black and white thinking loves to attach to. Anyway, I just wanted to talk about that a little bit, because it was something that was just so powerful to me. And it, it helped push my own judgment that I've, I've, I've dealt with and tried to understand more and manage it pushed that judgment out and, and show like clearly showed me that addiction is a disease. And I, I'm, I'm just being honest with you here, because I think that we all need a little more honesty right now in our lives. And it's just powerful. So anyway, I'll move on to your questions. But I really that was such a great episode for me. And, and maybe it'll be for you too. But it's just, yeah. Yeah, I don't like the counting. What do you think? Let me know. Okay, let's move on. I know that's like a heavy way to start, but I didn't want to forget. And that's why I'd taken my notes. And I do want to check and make sure that I didn't forget anything. Yeah, the reason I don't like counting 
And then that's it. Okay, perfect. Now into what I'm calling question number two, because that was that was my question number one. And I'm sorry, I jumped the line. I know that's not fair. But I just want to talk about it. Okay, question number two says, Hi, Katie, how do you deal with being a later in life virgin? I'm 21. And I'm getting to um, I'm Oh, English is a second language. So they're saying that I'm starting to it's starting my therapist is asking me to talk about this is what they're saying. It all started we were talking about my poor interpersonal skills. My therapist asked me if I'd lost my V card so directly and clearly, and I've never felt so humiliated in my life. It's not that hard to say it in English, but when it comes to my first language, being a virgin sounds like I'm late in life um, and ingenuous in a silly way. Is that right? Yeah, that's the right word. In my view, it was very similar to answer not only yes, I am, but also um, I'm stupid and all that stuff. Things get worse when I remember that I've never even kissed anyone before. I found this, this question got a lot of, I mean, so many likes and a ton of conversation below. And first of all, I'll be true, like honest again, we're gonna, this is the theme of this week's podcast is honesty. And my first thought when you said being a later in life virgin, virgin in my head, I was like, oh, are they like in their forties or fifties or something? Is that feeling late to them? Or what, you know, what's this time frame? And then I read, I'm 21. And I was like, Oh, my God, I had so many friends that never lost their virginity until much later in their life. And so I have a couple of thoughts about this. Now, first is the one thing that I hate about social media, I hate about society and people is timelines, there's no right time to lose your virginity or just to throw out some other things that I think people feel rushed to do is to get married, have kids, buy a house, go to school, pick a career, all of this is apparently supposed to be decided when we don't even know who the fuck we are. Like, I can't tell you how many of my friends I grew up with in between 18, right? We graduate high school, at 18 years old, between 18 and 28. So this 10 year period, we're expected to do all those things almost like get started on all those things I just mentioned. And so many of my friends who rushed and did all that and tried to do that are now, you know, single, divorced, switching careers, maybe frustrated with decisions that they made. And some people might be happy with the decisions they made. No judgments on that. I'm just saying that like everything should be done at a time that's right for us. I don't care what anybody else is doing. It doesn't even matter. And so I I just had to mention that because I think that it's bullshit that we try to do this to people. We try to rush life in a way that it shouldn't be rushed. And 21 is not old and 41 isn't old because it's really up to you and your timing of what, even if you want to, people don't always want to, like there's asexuality is a thing and some people are not interested in sex at all for whatever reason, whether it's aromantic or asexual, like I know there's differences and I'm not here to get into that, but I'm just saying that all of us, uh, we, we just get, we should have the ability to make decisions for ourselves, for ourselves and our timing and life. Because when we do things that are right for us at the time that it's right, that's when we will be the most happy. And so that those are my thoughts about it. But in therapy, my the work I believe and someone mentioned this in the comments below this is like, I'd be curious where that humiliation came from. And I would be curious. And that would be the work in therapy is like figuring out what what about it was so humiliating. And what, what assumptions or judgments are you placing on yourself 
about this, about not kissing someone and not having sex before? What do you think that says about you? What are these beliefs that clearly are affecting you? We, we have some deep down, you know, deep rooted beliefs about what this is and what, you know, like I've heard from um, viewers and patients alike, there can be thoughts of something's wrong with me or no one's ever going to love me or any number of those types of things. And I, I don't know if that's what's coming up for you, but I would be very curious and I would want to talk about this. And I would also be curious about, and, and this is no, not a judgment question, but like the, have, are you not comfortable with people getting close to you? Is that something that we should talk about? Like you said, you're talking about interpersonal skills. Is it difficult for you to be in a relationship? How about a romantic relationship or a relationship that's intimate? Intimacy does not mean just sex. I just want you all to know intimacy can be there in friendships. It can be there in uh, all sorts of types of relationships. Intimacy is really like another level of closeness. So how do you feel in those situations? I would really want you to kind of dig into the the why behind all that has come up for you, just having your therapist ask you if you had lost your virginity or not, and what assumptions you're making about yourself because of your answer. Um, because I know I could tell you all day long that there's nothing wrong with it. I've had plenty of friends in the same position you were at 21. And trust me, they survived it and they're fine. And if they wanted to get into a relationship and, and have sex and make out with someone, they've done it. And if they didn't, they weren't interested, they haven't. And both ways is fine. And so I just kind of want you to feel free to explore your, your relationships or lack of relationships and your humiliation about this and, and, and figure out where it comes from for you and, and what assumptions we're making or what judgments or beliefs do we have and which ones are worth challenging. Maybe, maybe you do believe that it's something to be humiliated about. And, and I'm curious who, who told you that. And, you know, where do we get that message? Is it society? Because I know that it's the worst. Like, 40-year-old virgin was a movie and kind of made into a joke slash meme, and that can affect people. So I understand. Um, but yeah, I would just be curious, learn about kind of why all of that came up for you and and figure out then, once we've kind of unpacked it a little bit, I would encourage you to kind of write down or journal about, you know, what you do want, and whether you agree with what society or those other messages you've heard, like, give yourself an opportunity to be a little curious and, and get to know yourself and, and under better understand your response and, and to feel, feel more, because then you can make decisions from yourself from deep within, not from what other people are telling you all the, the noise in the world. I want you to make decisions that feel good to you because you came up with them and you decided and yeah, I guess that those are my thoughts. But there were like I said, there was so much conversation. If you guys want me to address this in a larger way, I'm happy to. But the truth about it is that our society makes us think that we're always running late for things. And I want I want there to be more conversation about getting married for the first time at 50 and finding our career path at 45 or, you know, uh, losing our virginity at, at, you know, I don't know, 42 whatever. I just feel like we need these, we need more conversations and more encouragement and support of taking our time with life and not feeling rushed. For some reason, we try to squeeze it into our 20s or even 30s and feel like that's the best time to make decisions when I'll be honest, Katie at that age didn't know what she was doing. You know, 
like 21. Are you kidding me? I was out of control. It was not the same me. And me at 37 now can make much better decisions for myself and my family and my environment than ever before. And I'm sure at 47, I'll say, say it again, that at 37, I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. So don't feel like you have to have all the answers. But I just want you to be curious and be a little less judgmental on yourself and kind of learn where all of that judgment and humiliation is coming from. Does that make sense? I hope so. Okay, moving right along to question number three says, do therapists get bored? This is a good question. If a patient doesn't give new information in sessions, I usually answer with nothing happened when she asks how my week went. Oh, that's so common. Don't worry, because I can't recall anything interesting or even not interesting. And I know she's curious. So I feel bad for being undeliberately uncommunicative. I love that phrase. It's fun to say. Yes, she can always ask a question to which I can answer and then we can move on from there. But sometimes I wonder if she feels like she'd rather work with a patient who's more dynamic. Great question. And the truth is each patient is different. And I'll be honest here, just hear me out. And I know a lot of you are going to be like, oh, they know. But patients sometimes will snow you as a therapist with a shit ton of what I call like verbal diarrhea. And I am that patient. I will be honest. I come and dump everything. And that can be overwhelming for a therapist to figure out where to start. And it can be hard to get a word in with patients like that sometimes because they have so much to say. And that can be just as difficult. So I just want you to know that difficulty in session doesn't mean that we're bored or that we're overwhelmed. It's just we have to use different tools and different strategies, different treatment plans, right? So there's no right or wrong way. I just want you to know that there's a whole spectrum of how much people are able to say in session or information that people will willing, willingly give to their therapist. And it's all fine. What I would encourage you to do to help you get across more of the information that probably is important, but we're just forgetting, like, I'll be truthful. My husband, Sean, if you don't know him, he forgets everything. Like when it comes to emotional things, like if we've had like a, a discussion about something that got a little heated, it's not very common, but it happens. He'll, he doesn't remember what it was about. Like it's, I think it's just like adaptive, like a way to get through like difficult situations. But there are a lot of people out there just like him that do that. And so we, it's okay to not remember, but I would encourage you like, like he, Sean does is to get a little journal and to write down some basic notes. And that's what a lot of the comments below this talked about. And I really loved it because I was like, you guys have the answers already. You already know. And I love that about our community helping each other. It's beautiful and wonderful. Um, but just even bullet points, like at the end of a day, or maybe maybe keep it on you. Like if you leave your house, if you're lucky to leave your house, I'm jealous of you because, you know, things can be so exciting like that. And we don't get, I don't get to leave my house that often. Um, but you know, put it in your purse, keep it in your car, put it in your pocket and get a small one that fits in your pocket. I would just encourage you to jot down some things like as they pop up. Cause like you said, I just can't remember. or I, I don't recall anything that happened. So keep something with you where you can jot down some stuff that happens. Before you go into session, you can look at it and be like, oh, I don't think I want to talk about that. I don't want to talk about that so much. I want to talk about this. You know, we can edit it. I would encourage you not to have judgment around like what's important or not important because that's kind of a defense mechanism. And it's us like invalidating or passing judgment on ourselves and not allowing, you know, like it's not allowing ourselves to feel how we feel and 
be okay with the fact that maybe that quote unquote small upset was actually a big upset. You know what I mean? And so writing things down will really help. And you can also ask your therapist if they're open to it, if they would allow you to email these lists to you or to them. And they can, you know, they won't necessarily open them or read them before session, but they can like right before you come in or at the beginning of session, you guys can take like five minutes and your therapist can read them. I've done that with patients over the years who have a tough time communicating in session. Um, That could be a way, but I really think just jotting things down will really help. And then, you know, maybe two hours before your session, you get into your, your journal for that week and you read through it. And you pick out the things that you want to talk about. And then you can just read directly from your journal. There's nothing wrong with saying, yeah, so last Wednesday, after our session, you know, I had this interaction with my friend or my mom or my whoever, and it was really hard and, you know, blah, blah, blah. You can bring things up that way. And then your therapist will slowly get to know you better, get to know situations that are upsetting, you know, to you more and be able to offer more, hopefully helpful tools and resources to to move you past whatever's going on and help you feel better. But it's very common. Don't think that your that therapists get bored. It's more like, for me, it's a challenge in a new way, just like the patient who talks a lot, each type of patient is interesting, valued, and it's just a different I'm just trying to find a different way to get in. So with the person who talks a lot, if they talk a lot and say nothing, which we all like, I kind of do that sometimes, I have to figure out how to ask a question that pushes them past that basic comfort zone of of talking about things and to keep the conversation direct, right? So that it's moving towards something versus feeling like it's all scattered. I want to kind of contain it for them. And then with someone who's not opening up and struggles to remember anything, it's trying to figure out the right way to ask questions so that they can get excited and they can share and they can remember. And so it's just a different challenge, but both are our wonderful patients. There's, I'm not bored in either scenario. Um, yeah. So don't worry. Your therapist cares about you and is not bored. Okay. Question number four says, hi, Katie, how can I cope with feeling lonely and seeking connection and validation while simultaneously being incredibly stressed out by human contact? So common. I'm easily triggered in conversations. I am autistic and easily sensorily overwhelmed when meeting people and run into misunderstandings all the time, which I'm tired of solving. I have trouble staying focused when someone is talking to me. I suspect a mix of anxiety, ADHD, and auditory processing issues. I have anticipation anxiety about how people will be like or will respond. Online communication is stressing me out too, as I feel like I need to always be available. And there were a bunch of comments and there's one more kind of question on top of this, but I want to discuss this one first because it can be very, it's very common if we are on the autism spectrum, like this person is, we can get overwhelmed sensorily very easy, depending on our own, you know, ability to regulate ourselves. We can get overwhelmed quickly. And there are a couple things. And there was one comment again in in the comments below this question that hit the nail on the head with one of my tips. And one of those is doing interactions when there are other things going on, like interactive hangouts, meaning that maybe we go on a hike, or maybe we are uh, like doing something that's soothing at the same time as we're hanging out like a 
not that this is a good example because COVID and things, I know it's not always open, but let's say that we've always enjoyed uh, some kind of arts and crafts and we go to the painted plate or color me mine where you like paint a bowl or you look, take in a knitting class or um, music class or something. And music might be overwhelming if auditory is too much, but I'm just throwing out different things that we can do that keep us busy and doing something that kind of distracts us from the overwhelm and the anxiety and can help us soothe while at the same time being able to engage. And then another thing that this came to my mind when I was reading the question is just being very specific about who and like how many and for how long we will see people because everybody has different abilities. I Def, I'm, I know that I'm kind of in the middle between introvert and extrovert because I do love to see my friends and hang out, but I don't like big groups and huge parties and like hours and hours and hours of interaction that wears me out. So recognizing what that balance is for you, like, is it a 30 minute or an hour long coffee date where we go for a walk? Is that about all we can do? Then that's what we schedule. Is it, you know, two hours with a really close friend where we watch a movie and kind of talk a little but not a ton, then maybe we do more of that. So trying to find ways to to get that balance for you so you don't feel so dysregulated. And then I believe with getting having more experiences where you have comfortable interactions will lower that anticipatory anxiety that you're feeling, like that buildup where you're like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And then you go in and you're already maxed out because that's not helping things either. But so I would I think that that that's part of it. And then, um, and I want to get in the online communication thing, which I'll do in a minute. But then I think um, if we can find ways to soothe our system ahead of time, that's like the another component is tools to help you feel regulated. I would talk to your therapist or find a therapist who can, who works uh, with people who have are on the autism spectrum can offer some resources or maybe look up online some things we can try to do. I know everything from uh, a lot of viewers have told me they wear these weighted vests. I don't know if you've heard of these, but they're like weighted blankets, but they're vests. So you can wear them out into the world, which can help if we feel anxious about being out in public or something, it can help us calm down. Or if some we're going to somewhere that, that someplace it's a little bit noisier than we would like, that can help. There are a lot of things that we can do to soothe. And so figure out some of those things that you can do and have them on hand and use them when you start to feel that anticipation anxiety, like it ha it starts to creep up. We need to be able to calm our system back down and feel okay. And then the online communication, my, I struggled with this back in the day when I first started my channel, I would answer every comment, everything and everything had notifications It would ping my phone. It was overwhelming. I would encourage you to turn off your notifications. And if you feel it's a, I mean, I've, I try to practice this not as often as I should, but, but it should be at least once a week. Turn your phone off. I know you just freaked out. Oh my God. Oh my God. What if people can't get a hold of me? Oh my God. And then that worry thought, let's play it out. Okay. So if people can't get a hold of, I'll just do it personally. If people can't get a hold of me. Hmm. What would possibly happen? Worst case scenario is if it's a work day, which, you know, I don't know why I do it during a work day, but I could miss a call or my manager could get mad because I missed something or she could have a question and I don't answer it for a couple hours or something like that. But usually things aren't very, even worst case, I'm like, things aren't usually that tight of a time frame. So, hmm, even that's pretty unlikely, right? Oh no, if someone commented back on my comment, 
Is it okay if they wait a day for me to respond? It actually is. Hmm. Let's think about this, right? We have to challenge those worry thoughts because anxiety will just pull us through the ringer, making us think all these things that we have no facts to support. So I'd encourage you to do some playing it out. Like they call it playing it till the end on CBT. And it can help because sometimes we can't, we don't really think it all the way through. We just like fixate on that worry thought and go round and round and round and round. And we don't see it that, okay, well, if online communication, so if someone texts me, and I even think personally, sometimes I'm like, if someone, te- if I texted someone, they didn't get back to me for like two or three hours, or even a day, would I be offended? And the answer is no. Because I'm probably doing something else. And after about 10 minutes of after I text someone, I forget that I did it. So just keep that in mind, check your facts, play it out. And I think that will help kind of assuage the, the, that anticipatory anxiety that's happening, or the communication stressing you out. And then the comment on top of this said, I'm not autistic, but I got injured. And it gives me anxiety to some degree. And I just got diagnosed with bipolar. So needless to say, with lockdown, my mental health is deteriorating. It's really hard to prove how nice I am when I can't show my winning smile, right? Quick whip and unassuming posture. Any tips with online communication regulation would be helpful. I when it comes to uh, online communication, something that I always err on the side of, and you guys will probably notice this if you've followed me for any amount of time, is I overuse emojis like crazy so that people know that I'm really nice and I'm friendly. And because there's no inflection in texts and stuff like that, I mean, I've gotten away from it as I've gotten older, I guess, um, and become more comfortable with it. I used to worry you guys so it's my own work in therapy, but I used to worry so much about upsetting someone else or offending someone that I would go above and beyond what I needed to, to make sure they knew I wasn't upset and I wasn't upsetting them. And it was a shit show. So I've gotten away from that as I've gotten better, but it's a great place to start is to, um, work on our clear communication. So when we think that maybe something could be taken offensively, let's say I sent a text to a friend and I said, um, I don't know. She, she asked if, if we could do a zoom next week for happy hour on Thursday. And I said, yeah, that works. And that's it. Yeah, that works. Period. No emojis, no nothing. And then if I was reading that and was like, hey, if I got that, I might be like, oh, is she not even excited? Then I just send like the emoji with the jazz hands or the excited hands or a party thing and looking forward to it. You could add that too. So there are ways that we can clearly communicate so that there's no uh, miscommunication because that's the thing when there's no inflection, there can be miscommunication. So I would just encourage you to read back what you think, what you're going to say online with, uh, you know, keeping in mind that that somebody doesn't know that you're saying it with that cadence of your speech, or they might not get that that's a joke or, you know, just read it as flat as you can and, and see if there's maybe a little bit of a a smiley face or a little like, uh, you know, heart or something that we should pop in there to let them know that we are happy, excited, and, you know, loved what they had to say or something like that. But I do think that all of us, we, while we're needing connection and we're needing more of that now than ever and the social distancing and the lockdowns that are continuing and happening, ugh, it's really hard and it makes us feel terrible. And so I would encourage us instead of spreading it thin across social media where we're getting into contact with all these people all the time because that's overwhelming, I would encourage us instead to focus our contact and communication with a few people, one to three, that we're really close with who really know us well 
and make time for those real connections. Because these kind of, uh, I don't know, it's not even just that the conversations themselves can't go into a deep place. It's more about them knowing us. That's actually what's soothing. It's not just connection or having deep conversations. It's knowing that they know who we are and we know who they are. And that intimacy is what helps us calm down and feel better. And so I would just challenge all of us to kind of assess what we're putting our energy into and make sure that it's something that we, you know, get we get back at least what we put in because so often we're having these conversations with people we don't know online. And it's not that we can't have friends online. I'm not saying that by any means. I'm just saying we need to make time for more of those deeper connected conversations rather than spreading ourselves thin across all types of social media, feeling like we just need, we'll take any connection because that can honestly lead to us feeling more lonely than we did before because then we really didn't fill up our bucket in the way we were hoping because nobody really knows us. And I hope that answers your question. Um, And then I think taking social media breaks altogether is really beneficial for all of us and unfollowing people, muting people. I don't take any offense. Like if you, for instance, didn't like the things I said on Twitter or something, which I don't even like Twitter at all, I'll be honest. Um, It's okay to unfollow me. I don't have any ego about that. I'm not offended. I want you to put your mental health first. And I, I would like to believe... And I don't even care if this is true or not, but I would like to believe that all influencers or all creators or all people online would feel the same. I know that's not true, but at the end of the day, does it really matter? You know, like that's why you can mute people. They don't know that you unfollowed. You just don't see their stuff anymore. And so I think regulating that and also every time someone comments, you don't have to comment back. I know that that's difficult for us. And it's a lesson that took me like many years of being online as like a content creator to learn. But just because someone tries to contact us that way doesn't mean that that's the way we have to like respond. And also, if someone says something that's hurtful, or that we don't agree with, that doesn't mean we have to argue back. Social media is not always the best place. I mean, it's usually not ever the best place to to have any kind of real conversation or discussion. It usually devolves into name calling or some kind of, I don't know, trash talk and garbage. It's just all garbage. So I would just take some breaks. It's good for all of us. I think we could all use it, especially, you know, with 2020 being what it is, a lot of people had time at home and like to fight with people online, unfortunately. So those are my thoughts. I hope that answers your question. I know, again, I got off topic there a little bit, but I hope that really helps. Okay, question number five. Hi, Katie. Is avoiding deep and hurtful emotions a sign that a person lacks empathy? No. Or the opposite, that they have too much of it? No. Is it healthy to keep avoiding sad or hurtful emotions? For example, I do everything to avoid things to do with tragedies like wars, holocausts, or other disasters where people or animals get hurt. I also avoid talking with people who are going through tragedies, are in pain, grieving, or are hurting in another way. It's like, it's not like I don't care about them. I do. I just feel overwhelmed even by the thought of opening myself up to those emotions. Why is that? Is it healthy to cut off from uh, such emotions all the time? Or should I try to open myself up to them? But how? And is it really necessary? I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Thank you. Okay. You and me, we're, we're similar. I struggle with this as well, because I feel like I'll fall apart and I'll start crying overwhelmingly. That's honestly part of the reason that Shane and I bonded so much because we're both these people where it was just like, we're empaths to some extent, you can look up what an empath is. 
but an empath is um, when you kind of like absorb other people's emotions. It's it's very it, it's beneficial in some ways because I can read people really well, and I can help people. It's, it helps me as a therapist, but I'll get into where where the limits of it are and how we can uh, help allow it to help us, but not hurt us because there is that line. Okay. And the word line or boundary is very important here. Okay. So anyways, an empath is someone who, so it's honestly the opposite because you're saying, is it a sign that person lacks empathy or the opposite? They have too much of it. It's, it's not necessarily too much. It's, it's just that we struggle to know where other people's feelings end and ours begin. And that's the work that you have to do in therapy. It took me years to to understand that and to recognize that. And so it's not healthy to keep avoiding sad and hurtful emotions. However, it's I, I want you to know that it's okay to cry. It's okay to feel angry. I think we should be making time for these things because my, my thoughts and feelings are about this. If you're anything like I was, is you don't do those things. You don't cry. You don't make time to be angry. And when you cry, it's, it feels like it's out of a, it's out of control. You're like, Oh my God, I, I'm like crying about something else on TV or this person told a story and I'm watching it on Instagram and I'm crying. And, and it's not actually an expression of what you feel. It's an expression of your response and absorption of someone else's thing and how they feel or what what it elicits in us. Does that make sense? And so the real way to kind of navigate this is to first acknowledge that we're absorbing other people's feelings and emotions, which is hard. And it takes some slowing down of our process because we'll still be crying, watching things or feeling angry about or sad, you know, whatever intense emotion, we can find ourselves still absorbing it, but we're able to recognize that it's happening. So I want you to notice when you're like, hey, this is because of that. And it's not actually my emotion. And maybe, just maybe, I need to find healthier ways to express what I'm going through so that it doesn't flow out into other parts of my life. Because if I haven't made time for myself, and I don't feel like I can cry or feel excited or sad or anything, then that suppression of my own emotional experience will run into um, into other parts of my life where if something even tickles that feeling, I'm like, I can't contain it because it's been stuffed down for so long, I'm like super full. Okay, so that's kind of one part of it. Then the second kind of what I was talking about a little earlier is like recognizing when you're doing it and checking in with yourself to be like, hey, is this something that uh, affects me directly? Am I going to be hurt by this? This emotional response is very interesting. And if it's too much for me, I have the opportunity to back away from it or take a break from it. But I should kind of get to know myself and what I'm allowing myself to digest or absorb. And boundaries are really healthy for those of us who are empathic. So meaning, and I know that might be like gobbledygook, you're like, that doesn't make any sense, Katie. But we have to be able to recognize when we're responding to something that doesn't affect us. And I know this feels very cold and callous to people who, especially those who are empaths, you're like, oh, but it affected those people. We can have sympathy for other people and empathy for other people, but we don't have to take things on ourselves. It's kind of that boundary around what I will allow myself to absorb and take in and respond emotionally about, because it it sounds, again, it's going to sound very callous, but 
our thoughts and that we the thoughts that we allow to take up space in our brain are things that we actually have a we have a choice over. And so often when we watch things like natural disasters, right, or like the Holocaust, and we watch these films, and we're like, Oh, my God, that's devastating. That's a normal human response. However, if we can't come out of it, we keep going back to that and like, rolling in the people, the other people's pain, we have control over that. We have the ability to thought stop to change the subject to watch something else to remove ourselves from it. And that's the boundary. And and I know that this kind of is like, it's tricky, and it's nuanced. And I understand because I've done it myself. And it's still it's still tough. And sometimes when I'm super tired, I'll find myself uh, becoming emotional about things online, or maybe a comment someone said just really got to me and it doesn't usually like we all have these sensitivities. And there's little holes in our boundary wall that we put up. But I want you to try to learn how to place that and the way that that works is to notice when you you can dip into this. Like I would challenge you to watch the news or watch uh, a documentary about something that that's kind of difficult, but is from an educational standpoint. So it kind of keeps a little less emotional. That could be helpful. But watching that, and if you get emotional, allowing yourself to get emotional, but then checking in and saying, you know, okay, but is this going to affect me directly? Is what happened over with and done? Are they getting help and getting support in their own way? We have to kind of start that separation. And then when we're done watching, we have to allow ourselves to move on. Because that's the problem that an empath has is that we struggle to move on. We hold on. We like, you know, just glean all that emotion from it and feel it so deeply, which is a, it's a superpower, I'll tell you. But we have to know when to turn it off. And so that's where you're going to have to figure out, okay, I'm done watching this or I'm done um, it's almost like I've talked about this. Uh, I don't know if I talked about it in my main channel over last week's podcast, but how I'll set like a timer for like 10 minutes. I'll be like, I can cry and be sad now. And then when the timer goes off, I'm like, okay, but you have to back burner this. We can't cry about this all day. We have to go about our day. And sometimes I'll be surprised. I don't really have to come back and continue to cry or I don't have to, but sometimes I do. And just allowing for those boundaries around when we're going to let ourselves feel all of it will help contain it. Because right now it feels it sounds to me like it feels very overwhelming and very out of control. And so there are times and places to kind of cut off from the emotions to like back burner them. But I really think you could benefit from uh, dialectical behavior therapy, DBT, or even some CBT, because again, it's those thoughts and what we're allowing to continue to upset us and to pull us into that like sadness, grief, the pain that we've, we, we witnessed by watching it. Um, and we have to really protect ourselves about and be more considerate and more mindful of what we allow ourselves to digest. So I know that was all over the place. Let me try to condense it into like a summary. Number one is recognize when you're taking on other people's emotions or thinking that you're responsible for making other people happy and shit like that. We can do that. Making yourself smaller so other people can be bigger. Mm -mm -mm. Notice when you're doing that. And I challenge you to push back and try to do something that feels uncomfortable, like cutting someone off midstream and saying, I also want to talk about and changing the subject to something else. I encourage you to do some stuff like that. Healthy boundaries, healthy, you know. I'm sure those of us who are super sensitive and we're empaths, we end up in these very abusive kind of suck relationships where the other person just sucks all the energy out of the room and talks only about themselves. Narcissists tend to love empaths, so be careful. 
Then second, so first is just like noticing when we're doing it and all that. Second is, you know, being able to draw those boundaries in our life and with what we allow ourselves to digest, being mindful of who we follow on social media or what we'll allow ourselves to watch. And the third is then making room and time and space for us to feel what we need to feel. It's okay to cry. It's okay to get that out. That's part of being a human. I don't want any of us to feel like we have to be like a stone person. Um, and and then understanding maybe why it's so uncomfortable for us or what comes up for us about this, or is it, is it difficult? Cause we don't want the attention, but then we can't stop crying, you know, be curious about that emotional experience and maybe why it's so difficult or so easy for us. And yeah. And then know that you can back burner things too, right? You make time for that feeling and it's okay to back burner them when you can't, but come back to them. Okay. Those are just my thoughts, but I'd love to hear yours as well. If you want to leave them in the comments, you can let me know. Um, but yeah, that's something that I am constantly personally trying to manage. Okay. Question number six says, hi, Katie, I have a tough question. My 16 year old daughter who is a virgin, never had a boyfriend, not even kissed any, um, not even a first kiss yet recently told me that her cousin, my sister's son sexually assaulted her two years ago when they were both 14 years old. He thought she was sleeping and felt her up under her clothes as she describes it. She said she froze and acted like she was asleep until he stopped. Naturally, I am furious and want nothing more than to confront my sister and my nephew. However, my daughter made me promise not to say anything and I do not want to betray her trust. So I made her go to therapy. She went to two appointments before she said she wasn't getting much out of it because she's over it now and hardly thinks about it. But I'm reluctant to believe her. As someone who has been sexually assaulted myself at 15 years old, it took me years to deal with it. So my question is, how can I gently guide her to really deal with this trauma? And where is the line between being a supportive, protective mama bear and traumatizing her more by making her deal with it and or exposing this to the family? Thank you so much. Love the podcast and everything you do. Oh, I'm so glad. This is a tough question. And I have a lot of different thoughts about it. So my first thought as a therapist, I'm like, she's a minor and you're her parent and therefore you can report it if you want to. I'm I, you're not even talking about reporting, you're talking about telling family and stuff, but I'm just that, that's like my legal brain is like, "Oh, I'd have to report that." Okay? Because um because she's underage, but also my thought goes to what if he's doing this to other people? We don't know if this was a one-off situation. It's a very I know children and let I know this might be uncomfortable for people to hear. But it's a very natural thing for children to be curious about their bodies and other children's bodies, not in a abusive way, but kind of the like, I show you mine, you show you, uh, you show me yours kind of dynamic. That's kind of for many children, a very natural curiosity type thing. And for most, uh, at least my patients who've recalled that's happening, it's not a traumatic thing. It's more, they're kind of embarrassed that they were even curious, you know? And so I do leave a little wiggle room for things that like we as adults are like, Ooh, that shouldn't happen uh, for it to be like, Hey, we're just naturally curious and we don't understand. And it's not a sexual thing. It's more of a like, Oh, you, your body looks different than my body. It's that type of a thing. So that dynamic, I've had patients talk about things like that in the past. And unless there was a, a terror or a fear associated with it, we kind of move on, right? It's, it's okay. It was natural part of development and growth. And that just happened to be part of their story. And that's okay. Um, but him thinking that she was asleep and feeling up under her clothes is, is, and he was 14. 
it, that worries me because that is very much that's a sexual assault. And that's different from children curiosity. And 14 is not that young. It's young, but puberty is afoot and things are, you know, happening in both, you know, both their bodies. And I really, I would hope he's not doing it to someone else. And that is the conversation that I would encourage you to have with your daughter. At the end of the day, you can, you are the parent. She's not 18. You can tell whoever you want and even file a report if you want. Um, However, I understand you don't want to, you know, betray her trust, which I, I'm sure she appreciates. But I would have a conversation with her about the fact that you would, and, and bringing it up softly, and she's 16, so she's probably gonna be like, Mom, why are we talking about this again? I don't know. I mean, that's how I was at 16. She might be super sweet. I was a terror. So if you could bring it up to her by saying something like, you know how you're, um, you know, your cousin uh, did that thing to you and we were talking about it and you, you said you don't, you know, you feel fine and it's not a big deal. I am concerned as a, as a parent, as someone who, I, I don't know if you shared your story with her, but you could say, I would encourage you to do it if you feel okay to do it is, sorry, my phone is ringing and it's nobody that I know. Um, I would encourage you to, to share your story and say it was hard for me and I worry that maybe he would do this to someone else and that's why I really would like to talk to, you know, your, my sister about it or your aunt. That's how I would approach it. And at the end of the day, you can actually do what you want. But I, I would hope that she could kind of understand that because if you shared your story and it was really hard for you, you could say that could have happened to someone else. And, and you're, she has, she might have a ton of resilience. That's really what this kind of looks like to me is that she's okay to come to, to overcome it. She's like, I'm fine. It's whatever. And she's moved past it because she has other, she has ways to cope and things that she's done. And she had therapy and she's like, yeah, I mean, she could be suppressing it and it could be hard for her to talk about, but it, you know, everybody's different and there's no, there's no right way to react when it comes to something that could be traumatizing or is traumatizing. She went into freeze. So I would say that it was traumatizing, but I would bring it up as the fact that it could happen to someone else. And I really, uh, adult to adult, without your daughter, considering your daughter, I, I would encourage you to have that conversation with your sister. I, I, I mean, it just is a little too, even for 14, I'm like, what, what else would he, you know, it just really worries me for other people, other women or children or whoever he's around. Um, yeah, and try to make that case to your daughter. And then at the end of the day, you're, you're really going to have to make the decision that's best for you and her. But I mean, my advice is to talk to your sister about it. And, and to tell your daughter that you're going to if you plan on it, like, I don't want any secrets, don't keep anything from your daughter. If you plan on doing this, tell her, let her be kind of a part of it if she can, she's probably super embarrassed, and she doesn't have to be. But you know, and even unpacking that with her, that's something she should talk about in therapy also. And it might be, it might behoove you to see if she would have you come into therapy once, because you might be surprised. Um, I'll, I'll speak personally as other patients who've come in, their parents think they're coming for one thing. And then they come in for a session. And they're like, well, you didn't tell them about X, Y, Z. And they're like, nope. So before you let her get away with not going to therapy, before we say, okay, she's good, it's fine. I'd, I'd want to go in once. Okay. So those are kind of my thoughts about it. I do err on the side of talking and telling just because someone else could be hurt. And that, ugh, that just really worries me. Um, 
but I want you to incur, I want you to, you know, always collaborate with your daughter as much as possible, make her a part of it, even if she doesn't agree, and she won't come around to it. Don't hide it from her, tell her that why and what you're doing, and you hope she understands and you love her and all of that. Um, I mean, you're being a great mom, I think I, I'm sure I speak for so many thousands of members of our community when I say that, Almost all of us wish we had a mom like you when things like that were happening or things happened. So often I hear the opposite where we tell a parent about something and they're like, you're overreacting. So, and that's like traumatizing on a whole nother level. And so I I really appreciate you and I appreciate that question and hopefully, hopefully she'll come around. Okay. Okay. Question number seven says, Hey, Katie, why is it bad that I intellectualize my sessions? It's a defense mechanism. Oh, her next, her next sentence. I know it's a defense mechanism, but I don't understand why my therapist doesn't want me to say things like, I experience depersonalization. In the end, it doesn't truly make a difference if I tell her how I feel or if I say or say the things she'll probably write down. Whenever I'm in therapy session, in a therapy session, I tend to analyze myself. So instead of saying what I feel, I'd address the fact that I'm projecting and I tell my therapist that I know what she will say. I know my therapist is amused by it a lot of the time and told me she doesn't want me to talk about the, the theory, but how I feel. How can I stop myself from intellectualizing so much, especially when I often don't realize it anymore and I feel like I'm actually saying what I feel? Thank you so much for doing this podcast. Of course, this and I don't mean to laugh. It's just funny because it's, it's a defense mechanism and being intellectual about something keeps emotions at bay and helps us feel safer. And that helps and keeps us alive for a while, right? It can be, uh, it's like adaptive. If, if things are overly emotional and overwhelming, then this helps us get through, right? We're able to use this defense mechanism. We intellectualize it. We call it what it is. We use all the right words. We identified the symptoms and we recognize that that we're doing this thing that's dysfunctional. Okay. So that's, it can help us see it and acknowledge it without being attached to it. And that's the problem. So when we intellectualize it, it's very much uh, externalization of the issue, meaning it's not part of me. I'm not I'm not really affected by it, but this is what's happening. And I know I'm doing this. We like, it doesn't, it's not connected to us. And what I would also argue, and probably the reason your therapist is like challenging you on this is that I'm assuming and just making a guess that emotions feel very out of control for you. And you don't actually know if you experience them or not. And if I gave you a feelings chart and, and asked you to pick, you know, five emotions you felt that day, it'd be v- extremely difficult. And you'd probably pick ones that um, that we hear the most. Like, oh, I was sad about this. I was like, happy about that. I was worried about coming in here. And I was stressed about this thing at work. And they'd be very unattached to our real overall experience. I'm just guessing. And so the way to kind of stop intellectualizing is a couple of steps. The first is just to recognize when you're doing it, because it sounds like you know you're doing it and your therapist calls you out on it, which I know is uncomfortable, but it's actually really helpful and great. Um, Oh, you said I often don't realize it anymore. I feel like I'm okay. So I would uh, notice in therapy and even tell your therapist about this, like when she's calling you out. I don't know if this she's okay with this, but I'm sure she would be, is I would encourage you to kind of jot down in a journal, bring your journal with you to, to therapy, 
just like I'm jotting down notes with my patients, you can jot down your own therapy notes. So when your therapist calls you out on it, I want you to write like a little sentence or two briefly about what you were saying and what was happening. Like, let's say, like you said, I experienced depersonalization or something or like, I know I'm projecting. So let's say in the projecting, it's like, your note would be, I projected onto therapist act treated her like she, uh, you know, I'm, I, I assume I was feeling what I told her she felt, which was this, or I said to her that this was happening and, and I'm, and maybe that's me that was feeling that way. Okay. So we write down a little bit of things because uh, what we're trying to do is just help you learn when you do it and why you do it, because defense mechanisms are very interesting. And I think so often we just want to get rid of them. Like, oh, they don't, they're not necessary. But uh, something that I talked about in my second book, it'll come out next fall is, um, and I'm forgetting that now I'm blanking on the name, of course, Katie, Jesus, but it's, uh, it's this, it's a fence. It's what's it called? Shit. Anyway, I'll figure it out and it'll bubble up in my brain. But anyway, there's this, I don't even know if you'd call it, it's like an analogy and it's about this, uh, this fence. And there was this author, God damn, it starts with an M, but I can't remember. Let me look it up. M fence um, analogy. And let's see if, if Google can figure this out for me. Um, oh, no, it's not gonna. Anyways. Um, so the, uh, the, the idea behind this thing that I can't remember the fucking name to, and I'm sorry, is that we can't remove something if we first don't understand what purpose it serves. And the story is this, this like fable that, that, that analogy I'm referencing that I can't remember the name of is talking about is someone came up to this fence and looked around and there was like nothing around. It was clearly didn't look like it was keeping anything in. He was like, this is in our way. I want to remove it. And this, the guy who owns the land or another person or something was like, um, if you can tell me what purpose this serves, then I'll allow you to move to remove it. But I won't allow you to remove if you don't tell me what purpose it serves first, you can't just go around taking things out. And I really love that idea, because the it applies to so many things in our life. And I talk about it in the book, I believe in regards to like triggers, and defense mechanisms. Because if we don't understand why they're there in the first place, we can't just try to get rid of them. Like your intellectualization has served you well for some reason for certain things. There's a, there's a reason that we do it. And we need to kind of figure out what that reason is. And so instead of feeling like, oh, I just need to stop doing this, like, fuck, it's so annoying. I want you to just be more curious about, that's why I want you to take notes in therapies, because I want you to figure out like what triggers it. Are there certain types of conversation? Is it all therapy? It could be. That's okay. Don't feel like all is lost. It's just like if the more information we have or the more information we can glean from our experiences with it, the better. But just be curious. And then even just journaling in your own time about like, have I always done this? Have I always intellectualized? Did someone else in my life do this? Am I is it a warning because I feel threatened? Does it not feel safe? Like, what purpose does this defense mechanism serve? I kind of want you to be a little bit curious about that. And then it, even my brain goes to I'm curious if someone in your life was super emotional, did that feel out of control? Or did we have a bad experience when we were emotional? Did someone tell us like, you know, uh, girls don't cry or boys don't cry or stop whining or you're always you know, did we have something like that happen? I would be interested about that too. And so that's kind of what 
I think that's your way in. And instead of just trying to get rid of it and like feel feelings again, because that's, we can't, that's like going from zero to a hundred. We want to go from like zero to one, two, three, we want to move our way up. And so we have to kind of be more curious about why this is happening, how long we've been doing it. Uh, Consider that I'm interviewing you to learn about your intellectualization. What questions would I ask? And what would you want to tell me? You know, um, just thinking about that, hopefully will help kind of like, help you understand a little bit more about it. Um, Okay, you guys, this is gonna drive me crazy. And I'm sorry that you have to like, wait for this. But I have to figure it out. And I'm looking in my book manuscript. And so I apologize already. Chesterton's fence. That's what it's called. It doesn't even start with an M you guys, Jesus, but Chesterton's fence. It's from his, uh, GK Chesterton's 1929 book, the thing. And it says we should not change something until we first understand its purpose. Okay. Now I'm just reading from my manuscript and my, my, uh, publisher would be pretty pissed. Okay. So yeah, understand it be curious about it. Teach me. Think that you're teaching your therapist why you intellectualize and what purpose it serves, because then and only then can we get rid of it. And and yeah, and also just recognizing the judgment you have about it, because it's like, I don't know why I do this. And it's okay. We do it for a reason. It serves a purpose. We just have to figure out what it is. And then we just have to find another way to either soothe so we feel safe, find like a neutral or safe place to go to in our head to know that we're going to be okay to share more. Um, allow ourselves to feel the feelings in therapy and learn to back burner so we can be know that they're not going to be overwhelming. Like it might be some things that we have to try to do, but we have to know more first. And I know that probably sucks because you're like, but that uh, I promise it'll get us in the right direction. We just have to start there because again, to Chesterton's fence, we can't get rid of something that we don't understand. Okay. Question number eight. Why is it when you have a trauma happen multiple times, does your brain just want to block it out? Hmm. With me, I've had trauma multiple times in my life and I just block it out and feel like I have to push it down. I feel like it doesn't matter and um, and I have to suppress it and keep my mind busy just to feel okay. How do I heal and get help for this? It's super common. And the real reason is that it's not even just trauma that happens multiple times. Trauma in general and I'll try to hopefully this makes sense. But trauma in general is very difficult for our brain. If we don't have tools and resources and ways to make sense of what happened, it never gets fully. uh, The memory never gets fully formed. Now, the way that uh, that's why I love inside out, and I actually reference it in my book, um, when I'm talking about the brain, because they do a great job in the movie inside out. If you haven't seen it, it's a Disney Pixar film, I think. And um, it's beautiful and amazing. They show memories as these marbles. And it's really great how they show them being formed like, ding, and then they're ready, and they filed away, right? And then they hit the button at the end of the night, and all the memories get filed in for long term memory. It's beautiful. It's very accurate in a lot of ways, some ways, not so much, but a lot of ways. Yes. Um, and so I love that. And using that analogy, and I've talked about this a ton of times before, but it's like, while we're the way that memories get formed is usually in narrative, meaning stories. So the story of my day today would be like, I got up um, before my alarm, because I'm still kind of jet lagged. And it's annoying, because I'm waking up at like 745. I'm like, who am I now? Because um, I'm not a morning person, if you don't know me. 
So I woke up and was like, oh, okay, I'll go make the coffee. I made breakfast. I had a couple of calls. Um, then I had a hangout with one of my Patreon patrons. Then I tried to squeeze in a little workout. I showered. I had to do that AV check for my talk tomorrow. And then I came here and I recorded with you. Okay. I'm just telling you my day because that is a story. This, then this, then this. It has a beginning. It has a middle. It has an end. It all makes sense. I can tell it to myself. I can recall it and I can make it into a nice shiny new marble. And then I can file it away when I go to sleep tonight, joy or sadness or somebody in my brain will hit that button and those marbles will roll off. When a trauma happens, there's often dissociation. There's often dysregulation. I'm terrified. I'm overwhelmed. There's stress response, fight, flight, freeze. And therefore, a lot of that quote unquote story I'm supposed to tell myself and my brain is supposed to roll into this marble. It just cannot be done because there's no cohesion. It doesn't, it doesn't fit together. It's like a puzzle who the pieces, you know, when you try to squeeze that one and you're like, it should go there and it doesn't, it's like that. And so as our brains, like, oh, it's trying to grapple with this, like, uh, marble that has a ton of holes in it. It's like, you can see through it. It's barely even holding it together as it tries to form it, it like it's like it slips off that little uh, thing where the marbles pop up. It's like out of that tube kind of thing. It's like it shoots out and crashes on the floor. And so we can't process it and file it away into long-term memory, meaning we can't remember what happened because it was so overwhelming. Our brain was like, you know what? I don't really know what to do with this. This is too scary. Let's just, and then it's like, we sweep it off to the side, kind of like all that shattered glass that was the marble. We sweep it off to the side because it's too much for us to deal with and continue living our life and being okay. And so a lot of times the repressed memories are actually adaptive. It helps us continue to thrive and go forward. And it's necessary for our survival and us coming out the other end and being okay. And so it's not like we have to suppress it on purpose. It's not an action that we take. It's like an unconscious thing in our brain where it's like, you know what, this is too much. I'm not going to deal with this. And I know a lot of people like, well, that sounds like you're doing something, but it's really happens without our knowledge and without our Uh, an actual action or thing we think it just happens. And then we stumble into those splinters that are on the floor later. And that's what flashbacks kind of are. And it's our brain's way of saying like, hey, we need to deal with this. I'm like, I'm filled up here with all this shattered glass, we got to start cleaning house. Um, And so let me make sure I'm answering this question. She's like, how do I heal and get help for this? So the, the real healing begins there's a couple of ways that this happens. So first is really to put that narrative together as much as possible. And talk therapy is the first, the first road most of us go down when we're trying to heal from a trauma. And it is helpful. It helps us put it into a narrative or what they call a trauma timeline, which I don't even know if I mentioned that in my book, because it's, it's only helpful up to a point is we can put the traumas in a line to be like, this happened when I was six, this happened when I was um, about eight, this happened at 12, 14, whatever it is, we can plunk them down. And that can help us. Again, we're trying to form those marbles, right? So it helps us put that into a narrative. Then we try to talk it through with our therapist in as much detail as possible. Okay. Yeah, that day, I remember I woke up, I put on this yellow dress. And I was going, I was going to my uncle's and then, you know, so we can kind of start to tell the story as much as we can. And we're trying to reform those marbles. However, for a lot of people, just talking it through isn't enough. And we still have flashbacks, hypervigilance and all the symptoms of, you know, 
PTSD. So the next step is really some specialized trauma work. And so I would encourage you from the get to find a therapist who specializes in trauma. And this could be someone who also does EMDR. That's been beneficial to a lot of people. Could be someone who does schema therapy. That's another potential option. Exposure therapy should be part of all kinds of trauma work. Um, But I don't, you know, there's also like trauma focused CBT. There are a ton of different trauma modalities that we could access that could help us process it through. Because what we're trying to do is to get those marbles to be formed and then shipped off to long-term memory. And I believe that 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 can be accomplished through many different ways. It just has to feel right for us. There's also somatic experiencing. My friend Alexa would be so pissed if I forgot that one. Um, And she would never get pissed. Let's be honest. She's too sweet. But you can heal. It does get better. And just not having full memories of traumatic events if any, is very normal. So don't feel like you're not going to be able to work through it. They will ask questions. The questions should not be leading. They shouldn't be leading you down. Like, then tell me, you know, when the sexual assault happened, you're like, what? I was in a car crash. Like, we don't, as therapists, we are not supposed to lead you to a conclusion. We're supposed to just ask questions like, okay, then tell me more about that. Do you remember what you saw that day? Or what were you wearing? Or did you eat a snack? Like, we're going to ask random questions about all your five senses, try to pull you back there safely at your own pace to get you to talk us through it. Um, You know, and so we'll try to go back to the last memory that you have and work from there. And, and that's okay. It's very common. It's very normal. I have videos about repressed memories. If you want to watch those, it's okay. It does get better. I'm so sorry you've had to go through those traumas, but know that there are people out there who can help. Okay. Question number nine. Hey, Katie. So my anxiety does this thing where I can't do things in front of other people social anxiety, maybe like first I'll shake and get stuck in a panic state. Then I'll dissociate and shut down. It makes things like cooking while other people are in the room. Oh, doing group work at uni, doing music on my own in my, um, on my own in my room in case other people can hear me and just any sort of task in front of other people is super difficult. Any advice on how to kick this would be amazing. Of course, we are going to have to kind of to go back to, I forget which question it was, but we're going to have to find a way to soothe your system. I would assume that you wake up anxious, that the anxiety is like palpable, that it is overwhelming you. And we're going to have to figure out the triggers are clearly it's, it's great that you already know this. this is like super helpful information that we already know that it has to do with observation, someone else seeing or hearing or knowing that we're doing something can be overwhelming. And so what helps you calm down? What can we do aside from like, obviously, you can put on the list, like not do the thing or not be in front of someone or let someone else cook or any of that. But we're going to have to figure out what, you know, what other things soothe our system. And that's like key to coming up with some coping skills that calm you down. I have a whole video about 25 coping skills. I'm sure some of those will help. And there's also some process based ones as well as distraction based ones. I would encourage you to watch that video. And then the, the key to this then is a lot of CBT. CBT is great for anxiety. I know not everybody loves it, but it's, it's a beautiful thing and it really, really helps. And when it comes to your anxiety and these worry thoughts. So we have the things that can calm us down. Another layer to that that could assist is I want you to check your facts and to consider the assumptions you're making. Because my guess is these worry thoughts that come along with like, 
shutting down and shaking and when you're cooking in front of someone else is like you're making assumptions about it. You're assuming that they think you're stupid or that you sound bad or this isn't going to work or you don't know what you're doing or I don't know what you're assuming. I could be way off base, but there's got to be some assumptions in there that, you know, that you're like, yeah, I did think that. And I want you to check your facts. Like if you were watching someone cook and they were doing what you were doing, what would you think? Do you judge how someone else cooks if they're just sitting in the kitchen, like drinking a glass of wine while you're doing it? Probably not. I know I don't. I'm just happy someone's cooking and I don't have to. Am I right? So check your facts. Don't allow those thoughts to become beliefs and actions, right? We're talking CBT. So we get kind of caught in that like thoughts become, you know, we make our feelings into thoughts and thoughts into beliefs and we take action on those and get caught up in this cycle and it's horrible. So we're going to have to circumvent that. We're going to have to slow it down. We're going to have to recognize, we check our facts, then we can, you know, recognize our triggers and find ways to calm our system down. And then the last thing, and really what I'd assume you know that is coming is seeing a therapist and potentially seeing a psychiatrist could be super beneficial. It takes the edge off, like medication wise, it could take the edge off if you're drowning in the symptoms and any other work you're trying to do in therapy, or even what I'm offering as resources to you just is not going to work. Um, you know, we're going to want to get you to a place where you feel that you can do that work and that you can be okay. And it feels overwhelming at first, just like anything new. It's really difficult, but keep at it. I promise challenging it, using some skills to calm yourself down and noticing again, it's like that self-talk, like what thoughts are going on in your mind and have we checked them or are we just allowing them to exist and we believe them as fact without having any evidence to support it. So check your evidence, check your facts. Um, yeah. And then also I have a shit ton of videos about anxiety and I'll have a, a brand new anxiety workbook coming out soon. So stay tuned for that. Uh, I've been working on that right now. So yeah, we'll get there. It does get better. Okay. Final question. Question number 10 says, hi, Katie, can you please talk about how to deal with concentration and memory issues because of anxiety? Another anxiety question. I feel like I can't really make good experiences to prove my anxiety wrong because I'm getting so dizzy and scatterbrained that I don't manage to do tasks, participate, etc. Since telling people about it seems to raise my anxiety because it makes me stand out, but I tend to need to explain why I'm not doing so well. Things seem to be escalating a lot. Yes. And truthfully, your your system, your nervous system is completely overwhelmed, and you're dissociating. And that's causing that would be my hypothesis that we're causing the dizziness, it's causing you to not have you can't concentrate can't remember things. Because if we're out of our a body, I have a video coming soon about like panic attacks and stopping them It's like, if we're out of body, which is depersonalization, part of dissociation or derealization, which is like we're out of environment, like it feels like we're watching ourselves in a movie kind of thing. If either of those things are happening, if our system's that overwhelmed that it's pulling the ripcord and we're dissociating, of course, we're not gonna be able to form fully full memories or concentrate. We're like barely present. It can feel like we're in a fog or like a thick, like the air is thick, you know? And so that can cause us to feel all sorts of weird and not participate and not feel good. And so along with seeing a therapist and using even some of the tools that I just talked about for question number nine, I really do believe that medication could assist in this case. 
because it's escalating. And it, and my guess would be that even if you talk about it in therapy at this point, you might dissociate for most of a session and struggle to stay present. You're more than welcome to try therapy first. And I encourage that if that's what you're more comfortable with, because getting you some help is what will be the most beneficial. But I really feel like uh, medication could assist you a ton. And remember, we don't have to be on medication forever. We don't go off it without consulting our doctor. But it's something that you know, could get our head above water, like I've talked about for years is like, when you feel like you're drowning in the symptoms of your mental illness, whatever be anxiety, depression, eating disorder, whatever, if we're drowning in those symptoms, medication can be that life raft that just gets you above water enough that you can participate in therapy in a real way. And at that point, then we're just going to have to find ways to calm our system down, notice their triggers and what's going to dissociate us. And again, back to kind of, you know, checking your facts, noticing the thoughts and kind of circumventing that we get in that chain reaction of like, you know, we have, we have a thought, we have a feeling about it, we take action on it, and it slowly forms these really firmly held, potentially distorted beliefs about us and our situation. And so we want to kind of stop that cycle of feelings, thoughts, actions. Um, Yeah. But I think medication can get us to a place where we're able to do that. Um, And again, I would encourage you to see a psychiatrist just because they specialize in mental illness and mental health issues and psychotropic medication, which is what we call that kind of, you know, SSRIs, SNRIs, antidepressants, stuff like that. It's all in that psychotropic medication. So, um, but yeah, it does get better. We can slow down this escalation so you don't feel so overwhelmed. And I have a ton of videos about anxiety that I would encourage you to check out. I think I have like a whole playlist. So that's it for this week, you guys. Thank you so much for sending in your questions. Thank you so much for all of your wonderful, nice reviews. I was looking through the reviews on Apple Podcasts the other day, and you guys are just lovely. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, feel free to leave uh, reviews. If, uh, if you enjoy this podcast, share it with a friend. The more people we can help, the better. That's always been the goal. Am I right? Have a wonderful week. Oh, and if you're wondering where I get the questions from, I ask them in the community tab of my podcast channel, which is Opinions That Don't Matter. If you don't know, that's the podcast Sean and I have together. Um, but it's over there on Mondays around either 10 a.m. or noon, depending on when I'm up. I will uh, ask for them. And you can send them in and then the ones with the most thumbs ups get picked. And I'm sorry if yours didn't get picked. Feel free to ask it again next week. You can continue to ask as many times as you need. Um, I love you all. Have a wonderful week. Thank you so much for listening. And I'll see you next time. Bye. about your self-esteem or why your feelings hurt. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you